This is the third and final part of a series of mini-stories all about animals and their impact on history. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium. Episode 36, Animals, Part 3. Mini-Story 17, Advice for Animal Owners. In 1939, right before England entered the Second World War, Londoners had a terrible decision to make. The National Air Raid Precautions Animals Committee, or NARPAC for short, had the difficult task of figuring out what to do with the hundreds of thousands of house pets in the capital. Worried that rationing would be less effective with families continuing to feed their pets, or even worse, thousands of starving animals roaming the streets of London during a war, NARPAC published a pamphlet entitled Advice for Animal Owners. The pamphlet suggested moving pets from the big cities and into the countryside, but it concluded with this statement, If you cannot place your pets in the care of neighbors in the countryside, it is really kindest to have them destroyed. NARPAC began distributing bolt pistols for people to use to humanely kill their pets. Many Londoners were justifiably horrified by this, but they were equally horrified by the German advance in continental Europe. When war was finally declared in September 1939, many people began euthanizing their house pets. People were heavily divided on the issue, with many city dwellers seeking alternatives by taking their pets to live with family or friends in the country, but some simply took their pets out to the countryside and released them. By 1940, the Blitz had ravaged many industrial and urban centers in Britain, and now British citizens began taking NARPAC's advice more seriously. As war rationing took effect, pets were soon considered a luxury, and hundreds of thousands of English pets were killed. Vet clinics became overrun with sobbing families simply trying to do their duty to help the Commonwealth's cause. Veterinarians spent every shift euthanizing animals all day long. These vets reported those months as being the very worst of their lives. All across English cities, you could hear thousands of parents saying to their children, sacrifices must be made, or you'll understand when you're older, or simply, because mother says so. But none of those responses did much good. Not to a little girl who was crying as her English bulldog was taken from her arms, or the little boy who couldn't understand why they couldn't keep his cat's litter of kittens. Most animal shelters did what they could, but they were overwhelmed with animals from the beginning. However, some citizens got creative to save their furry friends. The Duchess of Hamilton, an outspoken animal rights activist, outfitted a massive airplane hangar with central heating where she kept thousands of cats during the war. The Battersea Dogs and Cats Home created an enormous dog sanctuary in the countryside and managed to save 145,000 dogs. As Mr. Rogers' mother has always said, look for the helpers. There are always people trying to help. In the end, what is now referred to as the British Pet Massacre ended the lives of over 750,000 pets. The phrase, war is hell, often applies to the home front as well. Mini Story 18, Gustav. Around 65,000 years ago, a large meteor struck somewhere near the Yucatan Peninsula, spelling the end of the great dinosaurs that roamed the Earth. 
thousands upon thousands of years passed and slowly, mammals and birds took their place. But they didn't take the place of all of them. The survivors, we now call alligators and crocodiles. These fascinating beasts have been renowned throughout history as fearsome predators, for good reasons. Their thick hide, massive mouths full of teeth, and the ability to be stealthy in rivers and marshes. But for most part, the phrase, they're more afraid of you than you are of them, holds true. But that's not the case for a crocodile that lives in the Rizizi River in Burundi, Africa. This crocodile's name is Gustave, and he is rumored to have killed over 300 people. This enormous crocodile has reached near-mythical status in Burundi. Gustave is estimated to be 20 to 25 feet long and nearly 100 years old. He has taken so many lives that many native people won't go near the water and will import their fish in from elsewhere. Gustave is known not only for his massive size, but also for the three bullet holes on his side and a massive scar on his shoulder. It's apparent that the croc has survived many would-be killers. Gustave is so large that he now feeds on wildebeests and hippos. Many research teams have tried unsuccessfully to capture Gustave. The last sighting was in 2015, where someone saw Gustave pull a full-grown water buffalo into the river. While there have been no attacks on humans in recent years, the current whereabouts of Gustave the Killer Crocodile remain unknown. Mini Story 19 Battle Bear During the beginning of the Second World War, Poland had been invaded first by the Germans, then by the Soviets. Many Poles elected to leave their homeland, while others were purged from it, many of them being Jews. These civilians ended up in far-reaching places, but a sizable amount ended up in southern Russia, who, after many negotiations, were allowed to head south to the Middle East. These exiled citizen soldiers traveled hundreds of miles to try to join up with British troops in the Middle East. This exiled Polish army made its way through Iran, stopping at small villages along the way. On April 8, 1942, a group of Polish soldiers came across an Iranian boy with a small bear cub. The boy said its mother was killed by hunters, and the cub had been left behind. The soldiers played with this bear cub and enjoyed its company, so they paid the boy for the bear cub and took it with them on their journey. As the Polish army marched through Iran and Iraq, then Syria, the bear was trained by the soldiers. It was given the name Wojtek, a Slavic nickname meaning happy warrior. It drank condensed milk out of an old vodka bottle and was given honey and marmalade as a treat. Eventually, the bear was given beer, which he absolutely adored. Wojtek was even taught to salute, and he raised his now very large bear paw to his head whenever a soldier walked by. He frequently wrestled with the soldiers and was even given cigarettes. The bear learned to smoke the cigarettes until they became hot on his lips where he would then eat them. Eventually, Wojtek and the exiled Polish army reached British Palestine and began to board a transport ship to Egypt where they would be shipped off to the front. As they were preparing to board, the British logistics officer made it very clear that anyone who was not enlisted could not board the vessel. With some quick thinking and some even quicker paperwork, Wojtek was officially drafted into the 22nd Supply Company of the Polish Army. I can't imagine the British logistics officers were too pleased, but the paperwork was technically accurate, and Wojtek the Brown Bear 
was shipped off the Polish army to the Italian theater. The Polish Second Corps, along with the British Eighth Army, continued their push through Italy throughout late 1943. In the beginning of 1944, they had almost reached Rome, but the Axis forces were still holding their ground. During the Battle of Monte Cassino, Wojtek provided the Polish Corps with support by carrying several hundred pound crates of artillery shells to resupply their gun batteries. The bear became the symbol of the Polish company, and HQ recognized this by changing the company's logo to a bear carrying an artillery shell. Eventually, the Italian campaign concluded when the Allied forces finally took Rome. Wojtek and several Polish companies were then transferred to Scotland, where they would reconfigure the Polish Second Corps and then take the fight back to their homeland. However, at this point, the Red Army was marching on Berlin, and the war in the European theater was effectively over. The Polish army began demobilizing, and the soldiers began returning home. Wojtek's caretakers realized it would be very difficult to find a place for an adult brown bear in their war-torn country, and elected to leave Wojtek with the Scottish National Zoo in Edinburgh. Wojtek enjoyed his time at the Edinburgh Zoo. He was quite popular with journalists and was a frequent guest on BBC children's shows. Wojtek the Battle Bear died in 1963. A statue was erected for Wojtek in both Krakow, Poland, and Edinburgh, Scotland. Polish soldiers were known to return to Scotland to see their old bear friend. Against the zookeeper's wishes, they often snuck Wojtek cigarettes and beer. Mini story number 20, Lonesome George. When Darwin first visited the Galapagos Islands, he saw many examples of genetic diversity that led him to his then-controversial, now generally accepted theory of evolution. One such example of the biodiversity of the various islands were the massive Galapagos tortoises. These enormous creatures walked the islands like ancient shelled dinosaurs. Around the time Darwin was seeing these tortoises and making his observations, these great reptiles were already being wiped out. Whalers and pirates found the tortoises easy to capture and kill, and did so quite frequently. In addition, goats had been brought to the island and now had become an invasive species. These goats decimated the local plant life that happened to be the tortoises' only form of food. On November 1st, 1971, a Hungarian scientist discovered a lone Galapagos tortoise who appeared to be quite hungry. The tortoise was given some food and taken to a nearby research station. He was named George, and it was soon realized that he was the last of his kind. George was assigned a caretaker, and a search began for a viable mate of a closely related tortoise species. Requests were sent out to zoos and naturalists all over the world, and eventually they found a possible mate. The female tortoise was placed in George's enclosure, and they got along swimmingly. George did his duty, and soon enough, eggs were found in the enclosure. However, these eggs failed to hatch, due to the genetics of each species not being close enough. During the early 2000s, by which point the tortoise was estimated to be around 100 years old, several more mates were tried, but each time, the eggs were inviolable. At this point, George's species was labeled functionally extinct, and he was given the nickname Lonesome George. George was, and would be, the very last of his kind. An animal that is the last of its species with no way of reproducing or no possible mate is called an endling. And that is what George became, or rather had been, the whole time. 
he quickly became a strange, somber tourist attraction. Many people who visited the Galapagos Islands would come by and see the old tortoise, enjoying his twilight years, with no children or grandchildren to pester him. On June 24, 2012, Lonesome George died of natural causes. He was discovered by his caretaker, who had looked after the old tortoise for over 40 years. With the passing of Lonesome George, the Pinta Island species of tortoise died with him. Lonesome George and the effort exerted to try to save his species is an exemplary look into conservation efforts and the mission of protecting biodiversity. Mini Story 21 The Norwegian Knight in 1911, legendary Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen reached the South Pole. The Scottish National Zoo in Edinburgh, the same one our friendly bear Wojtek would later live at, had just opened when Edmundsen presented them with several king penguins taken from his expedition. The Edinburgh Zoo became famous for its thriving penguin colony. Fast forward 50 years, and a different group of Norwegians, Norway's King's Guard in fact, were fascinated by these penguins that one of their countrymen had brought so many years ago. So fascinated that they elected to make one of these penguins their official military mascot. A penguin was chosen and given the name Nils Olav and was given the rank of Lance Corporal in the King's Guard. The penguin has been promoted every time the Norwegian military does ceremonial training in Scotland, so about each decade. The first Nils Olav passed away in 1987, but his son then took his place. Currently, we are on Nils Olav III, who has achieved the rank of Brigadier. In 2008, the King of Norway granted the military penguin knighthood. Nils Olav, or should I say Sir Nils Olav III, loves to inspect his troops when they arrive. He wears the military pin tied to his flipper with pride. I assume he fully expects his custom-made suit of shining armor any day now. Mini Story 22, The Great American Horse Race On May 31, 1976, hundreds of horses lined up, ready for the race of a lifetime. There were Arabian stallions, Icelandic horses with Viking pedigree, Irish thoroughbreds, powerful Appaloosas, and then there was Lord Fauntleroy, the mule. Lord Fauntleroy, or Leroy for short, was the choice steed of Verl Norton, a steeplejack from San Jose, California. Along with their many rivals, Norton and Leroy were set to race across the country for the Great American Horse Race. 1976 was America's 200th birth year, and a sort of bicentennial fever gripped the nation. Stir-crazy after 200 years of freedom, American citizens nationwide took the opportunity to throw themselves into patriotic passion projects. Railroad cars were painted red, white, and blue, nautical parades sailed through major ports, flags flying high. It was in this patriotic maelstrom that two salesmen from the Midwest dreamed up the Great American Horse Race, a 3,500-mile cross-country race through 13 states. The route was fittingly nostalgic, incorporating bits of the Oregon Trail, the Pony Express Trail, and the Donner Pass. It was advertised as, quote, the adventure of a lifetime for the common American who regards his horse as something special, unquote. The marketing was effective, and registrations came pouring in. 
At the starting line were 91 horses with riders. They came from all walks of life. The youngest was an 18-year-old country singer from Oregon, the oldest a 69-year-old horse trader from Tennessee. There were chiropractors, pediatricians, grad students, nurses, cowboys, and farmers. Many were in it just for the kicks, but others took the $25,000 grand prize very seriously. Many prominent riders with very well-trained horses were gunning for the prize. Naturally, most everyone thought the guy with the mule was a moron. Two jackasses, if you will. But Verl Norton believed he had a good chance. See, this wasn't a sprint, or even a marathon. This was a cross-country voyage, and that immense distance would be the great equalizer. Even the race's organizers predicted only a 25% finish rate. In front of a large crowd, the race began. No one was foolish enough to take off like a rocket, so the first stretch of the race occurred with the group together at an amicable pace. However, expensive stallions soon began getting injured or falling ill. But Norton and Leroy were doing just fine. The mule was a huge attraction at nearly every stop due to the sheer silliness of it. The lone mule in the great American horse race. All in all, the group of horses burned through 18,000 horseshoes, and many horses injured themselves along the way. At the end of the race, the gathered crowd was absolutely dumbfounded when a mule walked across the finish line. Apparently, Leroy let out a victorious hee-haw. When the other racers finished, they seemed to be in good spirits about it. They had simply misjudged the nature of the grueling race. However, the other horses' sponsors were furious. Some sponsors even claimed that Norton and Leroy had somehow cheated. Norton addressed the criticism by saying he'd wire the money to New York City, and the sponsors could race him and Leroy back to get it. The press had a field day, with newspaper headlines reading things like, Lord Fauntleroy is number one, or praise the Lord, or Mule runs away with great American horse race. Norton picked up his $25,000 prize money and headed back to his ranch in San Jose. For the rest of his life, he referred to himself as the Great American Horseman. However, maybe he should have gone by the Great American Mulesman instead. Mini Story 23, Best of Friends Across the spectrum of all biology, you'll find a process called co-evolution, where two parties benefit from each other in such a way that they essentially evolve together beneficially. A fantastic example of this is humans and dogs. We don't have enough evidence to pinpoint exactly when and where dogs were first domesticated. However, most scientists estimate two separate domestications of wolves occurring in ancient Europe and in the ancient East, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 years ago. There are several factors that led to the domestication of wolves, and most geneticists and anthropologists agree that it wasn't a single thing, but a variety of several factors that led to the dogs we have as pets today. The first factor involved wolves finding food. Towards the end of the Ice Age, food was more scarce, and humans, now working with more complex tools and weapons coupled with advanced hunting tactics, were beginning to take down larger game. Once a group of human hunters took down, say, a woolly mammoth, they would be on the clock to try and salvage as much of the meat as they could before it spoiled. In this process, they would have quite a bit of meat and bones left. 
some packs of wolves would follow closely behind and get a free meal from their time spent in proximity to these humans. For generations, certain packs of wolves followed hunting communities because they actually got more meat from human scraps than they could get if they had been hunting themselves. Over generations, the wolves that were the most social to humans were given the most scraps, where the wolves that feared humans often got very little. This selection pressure caused these wolf populations to very slowly become more and more sociable to humans. Some scientists proposed that the final straw for domestication was actually a genetic disorder similar to Williams-Buren syndrome, a developmental disorder in humans that causes hypersociability and leads to increased trust and friendliness. New genetic research lends credence to the idea that all domesticated dogs came from a few wolves with a similar disorder that led them to be overly friendly to humans. In turn, these newly domesticated dogs greatly improved tribal security and improved the human hunter's ability to track prey using the dog's scent. There was now a selection pressure for human communities to have and breed dogs. Dogs were the first animals ever domesticated by humans, even before plants or livestock. Thousands of years of human breeding and bonding have led to the ubiquity of dogs around the world. So, man's best friend is essentially a mentally handicapped wolf. However, there's a reason dogs are everywhere, and many species of wolves are nearly extinct. The co-evolutionary bargain made all those years ago seems to be paying off. Dogs are man's best friend, and humans are dog's best friend. Mini Story 24 Immortal Jellyfish There is a jellyfish that can live forever. This little jellyfish, Turritopsis dornhai, can die from predators or diseases, but it can never die of old age. It is, biologically, immortal. Essentially, what this dime-sized jellyfish does is as soon as it becomes threatened or starts experiencing starvation, it reverts back to a sexually immature stage by jump-starting younger genetic cells, basically reversing or resetting the aging process. Hypothetically, this could happen forever. Imagine with me, if you will, one of these small jellyfish suspended in the ocean. Prehistoric fish swim below it, large pterosaurs fly high above, a bright flash across the sky. As the water temperature rose and then fell, the jellyfish floated carelessly on, as three quarters of plant and animal life on Earth were destroyed. Millions of years pass, continents shifting to the familiar map we see today, and this jellyfish is still bobbing up and down in the ocean. This jellyfish would witness thousands of thunderstorms, billions of sunrises and sunsets, perhaps several close calls with predators, but this jellyfish endured. As proto-humans began using stone tools for the first time, this inattentive jellyfish was still pulled by tides outside of its control. As massive stone structures were built by groups of ambitious humans trying to honor the dead, or the gods, or themselves, this jellyfish simply drifted on. 
as agriculture spawned civilization and city-states rose to prominence and then to war, this jellyfish floated carelessly in the Mediterranean, amongst debris from naval battles from the Egyptians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. As religions spread their truth and artists spread theirs, as the world became interconnected by exploration and trade, still, this jellyfish drifted through the ocean, ambivalent of the changing world around it. When revolutions and the call for liberty resounded through the masses, this jellyfish was simply tossed around by the tide. Years later, this jellyfish was jostled by a massive wire falling into the water near it, as the transatlantic cable was laid across the Atlantic. As technology leapt forward, as alliances were formed, as empires rose and fell, this jellyfish remained. As a world war ravaged Europe, as another enormous war followed in its wake, the jellyfish continued its journey, drifting, drifting, drifting. As the Cold War raged, the jellyfish actually felt hotter, as humans' omnipresence and ambivalence began to affect the environment on a massive scale. As you, yes you, were born, that jellyfish was still suspended in the ocean. And when you one day die, that same jellyfish will still drift on its path, interrupted by more and more plastic. And as the next generations of humans rise to take our place, that jellyfish will remain whether humans bomb each other into oblivion or become some sort of cyborg spacefaring race, there's a good chance that that very same jellyfish will still be there. All of human history being a mere blip on its timeline. While eager scientists believe that these fascinating jellyfish may unlock the secrets to our own immortality someday, maybe, they can teach us something about our place in history, where we play such a small part, but a part nonetheless. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I hope you enjoyed this three-part series as much as I enjoyed making it. Tell me your thoughts by reaching out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, the show's email is historiumpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to see Historium episodes become longer and more frequent, you can donate at patreon.com slash historium. The best way to help Historium, honestly, is just telling a friend about it. As always, thanks for listening.